0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro.
1: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. technological advances, industry disruption, and shifting economic imperatives are rapidly changing the workforce. On Tuesday, December 18th, The Washington Post took an in-depth look at trends and innovations that are creating the next generation of jobs and reshaping how, when, and where we work. How can policy adapt to ensure that gig workers and freelancers have access to benefits historically provided by a full-time employer? In this segment, two of the Senate's leading authorities on the American job market assess the situation and offer possible solutions to these emerging challenges. Let's listen.
0: Good morning. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent here at The Washington Post, and I'm honored to be joined today by Senator Todd Young of Indiana. Uh, I highly recommend you follow him on Instagram, where you will learn that he can still do 18 pull-ups, even in a suit. So, in one of his recent posts on Instagram. Uh, we will also be joined shortly by Senator Angus King of Maine. I also recommend checking out his Instagram. He recently posted a, a post of him raking leaves where he says, it's nice to take on a task where you can actually see tangible results. So a little bit of political like commentary yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to remind our audience you can tweet questions to our panelists using the hashtag #PostLive, all one word #PostLive. live. Uh, we're going to start with some breaking news questions and then move into the meat of this conversation about jobs 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 and the future of work which I know you've been heavily involved with Senator Young. So the big news of the day is obviously these two reports that have come out that are talking about Russia's disinformation campaign to disrupt our elections and our democratic process in this country. Um, Are you confident that the outcome of the 2018 midterm election, uh, that they were not impacted by Russia's disinformation campaign?
2: Well, I've I read some open source articles uh, this morning, actually immediately preceding this event, with the understanding that uh, this might come up. And um, let me just say that I've been highly impressed uh, with Mark Warner's work with with uh, Chairman Burr on this matter on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, at a time when uh, there's much talk about tribalism and partisanship on issues of national security and electoral integrity, Uh, It's good to know that uh, folks are coming together. Uh, With respect to my confidence, my preference would be to review the report, to consult with uh, said colleagues and so forth before I opine further. But um, I do know that election integrity is something that, uh, you know, Every member of the United States Senate is taking seriously, and and, uh, I haven't sensed that people are prepared to score political points on this, which is really refreshing uh, that uh, we've still maintained that level of comity and uh, statesmanship on issues of, of, really, this comes down to national security.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when you read, uh, there's the two reports. I know we're all still making our way through them, most of us. Yeah. Um, you know, but what comes across is this warning that it's still ongoing. That it wasn't just a once and done in 2016. Uh, you know, you, in your state, a lot of battleground uh, elections yes. to come. Um, you know, what what do you need to do?
2: I guess. M- my message would be that we're going to have to remain vigilant uh as, as someone who is an intelligence officer in the Marine Corps. I know uh, that uh, the history of battle is one of measures meeting countermeasures and and so uh, to the extent we're able to come up with some mechanism some prophylactic mechanism to make sure that no one infiltrates our elections or influences our electorate uh, in, in an improper fashion um, uh, we will uh, w- there will be some way um, invariably around that and we're going to have to just stay eternally vigilant to make sure that uh, our elections are secure so i think this is the new normal it's not just russia Mm. Uh, there will be other countries uh, that uh, seek to do this Uh, there there are other countries uh, that in the past have have tried to insinuate themselves into our electoral process And uh, even in the the United States, if you look uh, into past decades, retrospectively, we involved ourselves Mm -hmm. in others' uh, elections. So um, it it is important that, uh, uh, that said, uh, the United States, uh, a Republican democracy, does all we can to make sure that people have faith that uh, when they cast the lever or they, you know, touch the screen, uh, that their vote not only counts, but it counts for the candidate that uh, they in, they intended to vote for. And also, they shouldn't go into the voting booth uh, under a misimpression uh, about particular candidates' positions or so forth. And um, it's becoming more complicated in this digitized world uh, where we rely on so many different, uh, you know, multifarious news sources. And, um, uh, and oftentimes, uh, there are... Uh, unnamed sources for particular articles and and so I think even the media is struggling to uh to adapt to this new normal so that the people can can really rely on the news they receive
0: yeah i 'm glad you brought that up. You obviously use Instagram as we were joking about earlier for um and I think that's one of the things that surprised a lot of people in this report, that everyone thought that a lot of this disinformation was happening on Facebook and on Twitter. And instead, there were even more posts happening on Instagram by some of these uh, foreign entities. Um, do we need to regulate social media more?
2: Perhaps. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a debate we ought to have. Um, I, I, I think uh, so many of us are trying to figure out um, exactly what that would look like. Mm-hmm. The business model of, of, of many of these social media platforms uh, is, is kind of a, uh, a volume-based business model uh, that relies on advertisement and, 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 uh, and, and, and so forth. And um, the business model of, of many of the largest and, and most subscribed to platforms uh, could, could be ruined. Uh, to the detriment of all who benefit from these platforms uh, if we're not very careful uh, in working with them to uh, accommodate uh, the needs of users who get real value out of social media on one hand, but also make sure that uh, we're not undermining our, our, our entire democracy in the process. I don't sit here today, uh, as I'm prepared to talk about the gig economy <laughs> and the independent workforce, uh, pretending to have all the answers, But I am a member of the Commerce Committee, and we've started to hold some hearings uh, with respect to this issue. And I know that Silicon Valley is increasingly trying to get out in front of this, taking it seriously, knowing that if they don't, if they don't come uh, with solutions in a box for members of Congress with respect to a new regulatory atmosphere, we will have to come up with uh, some solutions uh, independent of their thoughtful recommendations and um, they're we don't want to have collateral damage, but uh, we, may have to, uh, we may have to sort of find our way uh, moving forward to protect our democracy. So that's the best answer I can give you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, I, here again, I, I would just indicate that uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, to my mind, see this issue the same way, which is really helpful when it comes to getting things done. Uh, we're just relying on sort of the subject matter experts from the intelligence community to uh, those who, who have designed these platforms um, uh, and, uh, you know, members of the media to help us figure out the, the proper balance.
0: I'm glad you said that uh, about the bipartisan uh, agreement that this is a real problem. I, you know, I have to say that some of my colleagues at the Post uh, were calling a bunch of Republicans yesterday, and, and only Senator Richard Burr, the Republican from North Carolina who chairs the Intelligence Committee um, that uh, issued these reports, he was the only Republican that, that spoke out and issued a statement yesterday. And I think people were a little surprised not to see more uh, bipartisan. Concern and, and maybe condemnation of, of what's come, what's been revealed by these reports and by the intelligence community. Why don't you think more Republicans are speaking out? Well,
2: my understanding is is these reports uh, referenced Russia, uh, mm-hmm. and it was that's where the focus of these reports was. You can correct me if that's uh, incorrect, uh, not having uh, read them. But uh, news reports indicated that uh, they invoked Russia. Um, this administration has been incredibly vigilant with respect to Russia, from sanctions to heavy weaponry in Ukraine, to, um, to, uh, to responding in kind in the cyber realm, to making sure that they check Russian expansionism in the Middle East. Uh, if Vladimir Putin thought that this uh, administration is going to be friendly uh, to uh, Russia, uh, on on various fronts, uh, he's been disabused of that, and, and Congress has worked in a bipartisan way. I can say, as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, uh, to also uh, apply pressure to uh, Russia. So, um, with respect to uh, public statements, uh, uh, when this report was released, I think it's common practice for a chairman and a ranking member to speak about a public report. Uh, and thereafter, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we have particular members uh, of the Intel Committee who are read into all the Intelligence mm-hmm. Committee offering their own statements. But I'm not aware of any space that exists between uh, your, your R members and your D members, or uh, it might include an I member in there as well, as as Senator King uh, shows up. <laughs> uh, but uh, I...
0: Hey! Good hey. intro! Wow.
2: <laughs> you have... what, what timing. What timing.
1: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you just hear your name. Yeah, nice Welcome. to see it's you. It's good to see you. How are you? Thank Welcome you. Welcome yeah. to the Washington yeah. Post. Nice sir. to see you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: <laughs> well, I think Senator Young is relieved you're here. We've been pounding him on the report. Really not. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I'm, I'm actually,
2: uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to discuss this at greater lengths uh, after having read that one article about uh, it, and now uh, I'm just teasing, of course. but. Uh, uh, but uh I, I know the spirit of, of my response to uh these reports coming out uh is consistent i'd be surprised if we if we're not consistent with uh
1: your position which is is this on the reports of the That's last right days? Yeah. what's your biggest I thought we were on the gig economy yeah, I too yeah.
0: we're on we're on the gig <laughs> economy
1: for russians uh, yeah um. yeah
2: <laughs> let's yeah well we 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 both got gigged on this let's <laughs> yes. let's uh let's hope that uh Putin is a member of, of, of the independent workforce, okay. and, and uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: All right, Senator right. King, two quick questions for you. Um, yeah. You've read these reports. You're on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, what are you going to do about this, about this discussion?
1: That was the question I was uh, afraid you were going to ask. Uh, first, the reports are very powerful and I think underline what we've been saying for a year and a half. So you've read uh, them? I've read about two-thirds. Oh, I, read, well, is, I was flying down yesterday on yeah. the plane and, and had to hold my phone sideways. Yeah. So, I, <laughs> yeah. uh, But the data is, is pretty overwhelming. I think the, the big number was 130 million Americans at least were affected by this. Um, it's a very difficult question to know what to do because we're a free society. Right. We have the First Amendment. Uh, And the Russians are improving their tradecraft in the sense that in 2016, they did a lot of organic. They created their own material, their own websites, their own rumors and all of that. Now what they're doing, it appears, is more amplifying things that are already out there. Uh, Somebody in America publishes an outrageous conspiracy theory, and they amplify it and increase it and use the bots to make it trend. Uh, That's what you do about that is very difficult. It's not like we can just, you know, cut off people on the Internet or saying outrageous things. We've already learned that that's very difficult. Uh, so this is a long way of saying, I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think it requires some real serious thought. What they're doing is a kind of geopolitical jujitsu. Remember when we learned jujitsu was using your own strength against you? And that's what they're doing. If we weren't an open society, we could shut all this stuff down and just, you know, turn it off. But we can't. And, and so they're using the strength of our open society, First Amendment, free speech to undermine the very values of, of the country. It's a very difficult problem to, to figure out where that line is. So one, I, I actually do want to uh,
2: build on the, the uh, mention of the First Amendment. So if we were to apply the same sort of libel laws to uh, one of your popular social media platforms that, uh, say, the Washington Post has to abide by. The, the business model of, of these social media platforms would absolutely fall apart because uh, they, they cannot hire enough people to check every post and validate every claim. Uh, and, and, and so there are different types of platforms, yet increasingly so many americans rely on these platforms for their news that's why this well, is
1: uh, and facebook doesn't be know never- whether it's a newspaper or just a the back fence that anybody can put a poster on i yeah. mean that's the that's the dilemma
0: Um, I'm glad you brought up Facebook. One of the things in the report that jumped out at me was this line, regrettably it appears that the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, may have misrepresented or evaded in some of their statements to Congress, which was a pretty bold thing to say in a report. Um, Hmm. Are these companies doing enough to cooperate with the Intelligence Committee and provide you what's needed?
1: I think it's fair to say they certainly weren't at first. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think part of it was protecting their business model, but also part of it was they were naive. I don't think they really realized the extent of what was going on. They've gradually, I think, become more aggressive. And I think recently, as a matter of fact, there's a line in the report that says Facebook is doing a much better job uh and i think they are trying to 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 be on top of it but again it's a very difficult if if a post it's not the ads so much that are the problem it's the it's the the news feed that comes in that looks like you know somebody's writing have you heard that this and this happened uh and then it gets repeated and repeated uh and i can tell you as a politician this stuff is terrifying Because if somebody does a negative ad on TV, you can put your own ad on TV to respond to it. They're lying about my record. If it's something on social media, it just ricochets, ricochets around. You never get a chance to really confront it. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, you, you can never you know, put it to rest. It just keeps multiplying. So I think the companies are doing a better job. I think, I think Facebook is taking it very seriously, to be honest. Uh, Uh, Google has been a little more uh, reluctant because YouTube was a big part of what this report talks about. And I think Google has been slower. And As you recall, we had a major hearing at the Intelligence Committee. They didn't even come. And they should have.
0: Well, we will switch gears pretty dramatically to the job sector now. Um, (laughs) 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 Senator Young. you know, when we talk about innovation this country, I think it's a real shame that people often don't think of the Midwest. They don't think of your state as one of the first parts of where we're being innovative in, in America. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how, do you, how do you make sure the industrial Midwest is part of the technology revolution? How do we do
1: that? We've
2: got the right senator up here uh, to speak to that because Indiana happens to be the most manufacturing intensive state in the country right. and um there is there is incredible innovation arguably more innovation occurring in the manufacturing sector than in, there is uh the services realm when you look at the productivity improvements and 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 so forth um and and that has been uh that's been incredibly um disruptive but also promising in terms of the growth opportunities. so um uh, your your question was about how we how, how we uh, think about, should think about this.
0: Um, well, how do you transition? Yeah. I mean, yeah. is it just enough to let the companies uh, evolve and in, into yeah. the future, or, or do you need something else? Uh, something
2: I think this will be a whole of uh, society effort, right? It's going to require uh, government at different levels, federal, state, and and local, coming up with new models. Uh, uh, hopefully, piloting a, l- a lot of different new models, whether it's uh, related to uh, benefits or workforce training programs. Uh, we can partner with not for profits and right. also uh, the private sector. And, and uh, together, we're, we're going to have to sort of feel our way through this. This is uh, this transition into um, a new normal. Uh, where workers uh, prepare for jobs th- in k through twelve, uh, maybe pursue some uh, post secondary education, uh, uh, obtain a certificate, obtain an associate 's degree, maybe go on and get a bach- bachelor 's degree uh, thereafter um, and and then um, the expectation will be uh, uh, they're going to undergo a series of retraining programs as uh, is, is well and move uh, from one job to multiple jobs throughout their career. Um, this this is really um, we're already in, in the in kind of the middle of this transition, but um, it's going to take a number of years. It's akin to the movement from an ag economy into a manufacturing economy, and it's a, it's not something that uh, was adapted to in in, re- in ten years. It, it really took a couple of generations to get everything um, sort of set. And, yeah, and in that yeah.
0: transition. And there's also probably going to be a lot more people who uh, aren't working directly for one company. That's Maybe right. they're independent contractors or, uh, or consultants or something along these lines. And you've really zoned, you focused on that by introducing a bill with Senator Warner, the Portable Benefits for Independent Workers Pilot Program. Can you say a little bit about what that is and why is it just a pilot program? Why aren't we ready to actually introduce a full bill?
2: Um, Let me just start with the the easy part, the pilot program. I think we, um, in in government, uh, for, frankly, generations, have have, uh, introduced too many big, large, ambitious, expensive programs, uh, and then after a rigorous evaluation, when when that happens, it usually doesn't even happen, uh, we find out that we wasted a lot of money. So um, instead, we should take a page out of business's book, and we should pilot a lot of different models, rigorously evaluate, and then scale those things that are determined to actually benefit uh, American citizens in a meaningful way. And, and so that's the pilot program. Um, this particular model uh, uh, is, is one in which the federal government uh, takes some modest resources, $20 million, and offers grants to uh, existing businesses to uh, scale uh, portable benefit models that are working into other geographies and then rigorously evaluate those scaling exercises uh, we can do the same things with not-for-profits or state and local governments uh, and and uh... to the extent that a portable benefits model does not exist within a particular space uh... we can use this money to design implement, and then evaluate uh, said programs. So um, I think we need to do this throughout government, frankly, um, not just with respect to portable benefits, Mm -hmm. but also workforce retraining, as I
0: mentioned. Right, okay, okay. Senator King, you've been tweeting about one of the big issues in America as we move forward is that a number of people in this country still don't have good Internet access, including in in your state. It's Um, it's a
1: huge issue. How how close
0: are we to getting there? Well, first,
1: I want to touch on something that that Todd mentioned, and that is the transition. In 1850, 95% of Americans worked in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And that changed. Obviously, now it's like 3%. And it changed, but it changed in 200 years. It took 150, 175 years. It took a long, long time for that to happen. We're now seeing these transitions happen in years and sometimes in, in regions in a month. Where a whole industry will go away, yeah. and then what happens next? Broadband is the essential infrastructure of the twenty-first century. I, I mean, that's a pretty commonplace observation. The problem is in rural America, it's not there, and uh, there's a there's a rural broadband caucus in the Senate, started by myself and Shelley Capito of West Virginia, and you know the the usual suspects, that you can imagine, the northern tier states, some of the southern states, uh, because broadband, it's exactly what happened with electricity in the 30s. Mm -hmm. In the 30s, electricity first was available in dense urban areas because the houses were closer together and it made more sense to string the wires. The electric company said, we can't do this in these farms that are a mile apart. And so Roosevelt, uh, they did rural electrification with co-ops and those kinds of things that's exactly what's happening today, and of course the technology is changing so fast but the 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 the, the truth is rural America will be uh, it'll be catastrophic if we can't get broadband in because they're not going to be able to participate mm-hmm. turning it over broadband in rural areas produces enormous opportunities I have people in Maine where we have good broadband in some of our small many right. of our small towns that are working all over the country I walked into a coffee shop and people were working in Boise and California and MIT and uh, so if you have that that connectivity suddenly you open up employment op- opportunities for people in rural areas that that just weren't there before so the first piece is good broadband and in the farm bill, uh, I think 380 million dollars for uh, broadband for precision agriculture for right. the farming community—a big deal. It could tell you how, so how times changed. Are Five we... years ago, it was 25 million dollars. This time is 380. Yeah, so, so people are
0: recognizing. People
1: are recognizing yeah, the, the
0: need.
2: So, if I could just build on something that Angus said uh, with respect to uh, how the disruption uh, in, in certain local or regional economies often uh, uh, occurs in, in fairly short order. Um, this, this is occurring in, in little geographies uh, are, around Maine, around Indiana, and uh, people are indeed uh, struggling to adapt. So uh, we, we, need to, um, we need to scale up as many things that are, are working as quickly as possible and then uh, really mm-hmm. uh, experiment with new models. To put some numbers on this, uh, within roughly a decade, by 2030, it's estimated that throughout the world, Now, this is a a broad range here. Between 3 and 14% of the global workforce are going to have to switch entire occupational categories. That's over a 10-year span, entire occupational categories, but that obscures the fact that um, uh, if someone remains in a particular category, the nature of their job is going to change significantly as well. So a journalist... Um, a, a public servant, uh, you know, someone who's working at, at uh, a call center, um,
1: uh, or a Our medical. Categories prof- are liable to change every six a, years. A
2: medical pro- or or a medical professional. Well, I mean, they may stay in the same job category, but the nature of their work right. will significantly change. So they're going to need to have mechanisms for continuous retraining, which is really something we're going to have to focus on.
0: And is that uh, you know some states have started funding a community college like Rhode Island, where they'll give people free community college for two years to help help do that retraining in those states, another industrial state that's trying to transition. Is that a model that you think works?
2: We have the largest community college system in the country, in the state of Indiana. It's a unified system, and uh, it does work. Uh, but-,
0: but can people afford it? So I think that's what when Rhode Island, the, the state government is actually funding for people to, to go and do that kind of training. Let's,
2: let's see how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly think that everyone needs to have be able to play a meaningful role in this growing economy uh, where unemployment is now 3.8% uh, and, right. and workers in my, and employers in my state are, are struggling for workers. But uh, most importantly, Uh, we need to make sure that when someone pursues a program of study, which is going to pay them more on the back end and help them uh, pay back whatever loans they may have taken out in in addition to the grants, A, uh, that program of study uh, is valuable. It allows them to land a job that pays well on the back end, and B, they're actually able to complete the program of study. The most tragic thing uh, that I hear in my travels around the state is when someone pursues a program of study, incurs debt, and then has absolutely no certificate right. uh, on the back end of it. They're That's no the more employable.
1: Yeah. The, there's another yeah. aspect of this that I think is important from a labor and employment point of view. The biggest issue that I find in traveling Maine and in talking to people around the country right now is lack of workers. People are they're having a very hard time finding qualified workers. Again, going back to the, the idea of rural broadband, work at home, this is a way of of opening up a... A, a workforce right. that's available uh... and and could assist with other uh, th- eventually the lack of workers is going to be a real drag on our economy i know in businesses they just aren't expanding they aren't growing because they can't right. find the people
0: do you turn around and ask them have they increased wages in, yeah in those i sectors? always do Yeah, yeah. because sometimes, you know, sometimes they sometimes say yes sometimes
1: no and
2: um, I, I bragged about indiana being the most manufacturing intensive state in the country Eighty percent of manufacturers in this country right now indicate they are unable to meet right. customer demand or to expand their businesses on account of labor shortages.
1: One of my favorite signs was in front of a, a sandwich shop, you know, and it said, now hiring uh, health benefits and 401K Wow, for
0: fabulous. a
1: sandwich shop. Now, that's the market working.
0: right. right. <laughs> Although wage growth, it's it's better than it has been, but it's still weak compared to say the yeah. 1990s, early 2000 boom. So that's an ongoing. But I think pandemic. there, I
1: think there's a lot of opportunity in in rural areas. You don't have to, and you don't have to build a big factory anymore, mm-hmm. or you don't have to build a big office building. You can have your workers dispersed right. into the community, and it opens up an opportunity a for people in rural America, and also for companies that need people.
0: Right. On a scale of one to ten, we'll go for each of you. How worried are you about automation, robots? All these headlines telling us robots are going to take my job, maybe your job one day. How how worried are you about automation? Is this something we should fear?
2: Put me in the five category <laughs> because <laughs> um, I'm I'm incredibly excited about the possibilities. You know, within 15 years we could. Um, increase the rate of, of productivity by forty percent. I hear, and this comes from McKinsey Global. Hopefully, I'm citing uh, the numbers uh, correctly. Uh, so, so that's great. That means more wealth for our entire economy, more wealth for Americans to invest in infrastructure and other public goods like public health. Um, but at the same time, it can lead to great. Disruptions within right. the labor force. So that's that's the other side of it, and um, we need to do our part working with uh,
1: not-for-profits and, and for-profit companies and the to educational coming out, so people can transition. Right. I, I'm le- less mm-hmm. worried about it even than five because people have been saying automation is going to destroy jobs since the steam loom was invented <laughs> in 1730. Uh, seriously, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, all of these very alarmist kinds of things. There always seem to be new jobs that right. we didn't think about. You know, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, nobody ever heard of web designers right. and, and uh, all of those things. So I think there'll be uh, I think there'll be additional jobs that will come out. But the key is here's the here's the problem. I had a case once in Maine where a shoe factory closed and we lost 200 jobs. The same day, uh, one of our tech companies hired 200 people to do computer work and they were doing. Insurance claims in another state or something like that. So on paper, we lost no people. 200 lost, right. 200 gained. They weren't the same people. Mm-hmm. And the people who lost those shoe jobs, that's all they had done. Yeah. And they weren't going to be able to pick up and go to Portland and suddenly sit down and start processing claims. It's, that is the challenge of what I call stranded workers. Right. And we have to do a lot better job of providing immediate, good retraining to bring, bring people from one kind of, as you've talked about, one career uh, to another. My grandfather worked for the Southern Railway for 52 years. Right. Very few people happen. do that anymore. You've got to change careers three or four times, let alone jobs. Yeah. As policymakers, we're,
2: we're flying a bit blind, I, I feel. I, we, we need to improve our gauges, um, as, as it were. Um, we are told... Uh, by the Department of Labor, and they're doing the best they can statistically, that uh, in 2005 there were actually more members of the independent workforce, your gig workers, your contingent workers, and, and so forth. I'm uh, glad
0: you brought that up.
2: So, so they had a larger, larger percentage of workforce in 2005 that, were, were, that fell within that independent workforce category than now. Um, intuitively, still, yeah. that really seems odd. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so um, for us to have confidence moving forward as we develop policies in this area, I think we need to optimize our, our data collection, which is a boring issue, but highly important for those who take... Uh, you know, facts seriously.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. We wrote about this. The latest Labor Department statistics are yeah. that fif- 15, just over 15 million Americans are in the quote gig economy or independent contractor type work, and that's only 10 percent of the workforce. And like you, we were we were stunned. A lot of readers were stunned that that wasn't much higher. It feels like it should be 20 <laughs> uh, closer to 25 percent. Um, how quickly do you think it'll grow? I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, it didn't grow from 2015 to, or 2005 to the latest study in 2015, 2016. I I think
2: it has grown depending on how you measure it, right? Um, The way the Department of Labor now asks the questions through their surveys is is whether or not someone's uh, primary occupation is within the independent workforce. But Raise your hand if you've taken an Uber or a Lyft uh, within the last month. Here, Mm -hmm. all right. Most of you have had some level of communication with your Uber or Lyft driver, and and uh, you discover that this is a side job for a number of them. So they're not even included in in current numbers. So you scale that over all manner of different. Um, uh, professions, and uh, we're just missing a lot of people. So we've got to get better at that.
0: Yeah, because the labor department is measuring people's primary job, and so if, if Lyft or Uber is their side job, that's not their yeah. primary, and that's not being captured yeah. in those gig numbers. Yeah. Uh, one of the perhaps one of the biggest risks to the workforce is if we have a downturn in the next couple of years, that a lot more workers would be dislocated. The stock market's certainly not been going in a direction many of us would like to see. Um, What's your read? Which, by the
1: way, points out the the primary, we're talking about benefits in the gig economy. What's number one? 401ks, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which aren't doing all that well right now.
0: That's right. Uh, A lot of investors say they're nervous about a slowdown, maybe even the R word, recession, by 2020. Uh, What's your read when you look at the data or when you look at uh, what you're seeing in the stock market in your own 401ks and (laughs) pension plans?
2: Well, I, I don't want to talk the economy down, but uh, if you look at uh, historical numbers, I mean, I we would be due for um, a downturn in the economy. Uh, we're actually past due. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this expansion has occurred uh, over uh, a longer period of time than most economists would have predicted. So um, we just need to prepare for the storm, Yeah. Um, uh, especially while, while times are, are Relatively good, uh, though I know there's been a recent dip in the in the stock market, and that means coming up with new uh, portable benefit models uh, so that people can retire securely, regardless of of uh, uh, what's whether they're uh, in the independent workforce, whether they're uh, in the you know attached workforce, traditional workforce, or some combination thereof. Uh, the retraining models uh, that I discussed. And, and uh, I do agree, I want to embrace what Angus said with respect to investment in
1: public goods like yeah. uh, rural broadband. Really important, really important. Let me, yeah. uh, here, but here, uh, Todd and I have been talking recently about the deficit. And one of the problems with the current deficit is, number one, it's enormous, and number two, we've used up our slack to deal with a recession or right. to deal with a crisis. Right. And uh, we, we've, you know, we've cut taxes during a boom. We've cut taxes during a war, and we've created a situation where there's no. If you remember, the reaction to the to the '08 recession was a was a trillion dollar public fund to to try to build things uh, around the country to to, to try to stimulate right. the economy. Query whether we can do that again today because we've we've dug ourselves into such a deep hole. That's just sort of a a parenthetical that worries me. That we've we've used up our safety net, if you will, uh, f- for the... dealing with whether it's recession or whatever it comes, and we've failed over frankly generations
2: um, um, to take seriously the predictions of of actuaries right. uh, related to uh, the aging workforce, uh, the increase in health care costs, and and
1: to make sustainable uh, the largest programs of government, which we all want to do. We're the first generation in history to inherit from our parents and borrow from our kids. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Oh, boy. Well, that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Um, We just want to close out. We are here at the Washington Post, and obviously it's very uh, important to us what happened to our colleague, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, at the hands of the Saudi government. Uh, You both voted in favor of resolutions um, recently to uh, link the death of Jamal Khashoggi to the Saudi crown prince. You also both supported and you were very instrumental in making happen that resolution in the Senate uh, to call for a withdrawal of U.S. support for the Saudis war in Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia rebuked that Senate resolutions that you both supported. Uh, What's your response to the Saudis?
1: My my response is uh, they would be much better served to take responsibility and uh, make amends and and move on instead of continuing to deny the obvious. Uh, it just undermines anything else they want to do. On the other hand, I, I, I think the administration made a mistake by creating a kind of either-or. Either you absolve the prince or you maintain a relationship with Saudi Arabia. I think there's something in between there. You don't have to abrogate the whole relationship in order to call them to account for a really horrendous act. And I think it was unfortunate the way... Uh, the administration treated this initially. The Congress, the 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 uh, the vote we took on Yemen a couple of weeks ago was the first time in 45 years that a that a House of Congress has actually implemented the War Powers Act and exercised some control right. over the uh, executive use of the military. Uh, that's a big deal. It may not pass the House. It may not be signed by the president. But just the fact that I think the Senate asserted itself and the Saudis felt they had to respond to it. Right. Indicates that the message was received.
0: Senator Young, should the president condemn this, condemn the crown prince over this kind of like what Senator King was saying? My
2: focus from the beginning has been to make sure that uh, I give this administration and this president maximum possible leverage. Uh, to bring the Saudis into a position of better behavior to drive them to the negotiating table and to ensure that they negotiate in good faith. And I don't think it was a coincidence that the day the United States Senate took this vote, the day that it passed, this resolution passed the United States Senate, was also the day a ceasefire was arrived at in Sweden with respect to this conflict in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So um, we need to continue to provide this administration the leverage they need to apply pressure uh, to the Saudis, and but we do, you do need it to speak. Do think it makes a
0: difference if the president does make a verbal condemnation similar to what Senator King? I said.
2: think each of us needs to uh, make a ver- verbal condemnation uh, of the Saudi behavior. Uh, I've said unambiguously, and, and uh, I'm so happy the the Senate has spoken uh, in a clear voice, indicating that uh, uh, the Crown Prince has been reckless. He's been impulsive. Uh, he's engaged in monstrous behavior, and um, I think uh, that we will remain vigilant on this. In fact, the law requires it. The president signed into law. Uh, he's to be commended for it. He's signed into law the National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah. As part of that act was a piece of legislation that I worked on with, in a bipartisan way on the Foreign Relations Committee requiring this administration to certify the good behavior as it were uh, of saudi arabia uh... they certified uh... i wasn't persuaded uh... by the certification uh... the good behavior some weeks ago they'll have another bite at the app in, in in coming weeks let's see where they stand That's
0: great. Yeah. thank you so much for your time we're out we're out of time but we appreciate you have, having both of you here at the washington post to talk about
1: and you're jobs. a lot better off that i'm here rather than warner you know
0: that <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> See you bye. See you. Yeah, it's great. Hey, thanks thanks again, Senator. Yep. <laughs> thanks, Senator. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at washingtonpostlive.com.